0: Uh, you are listening to uh, Love and Science on BCFM with me Malcolm Love and Hannah Bestwick. Hi Hannah. Hi,
1: I uh, haven't got Andrew here this week. No, again. it's
0: very very sad we, yeah. we haven't got Andrew but we have got something in his honour we're going to discuss in a few minutes. Oh, yeah. That's quite good. So uh, sorry you can't be with us Andrew and uh, wherever you are right this moment, uh, very best wishes and uh, hopefully we'll... Uh, with you uh, again next week. Uh, so we've got an hour of uh, science chat and uh, science news. We're going to uh, do our best to talk about some of the uh, stories, at least that we find interesting, uh, in the uh, in the science news at the uh, at the moment. Um, we have got uh, coming up uh, in a little while. We're going to talk to Rusty Squid, which is a local uh, Bristol uh, company, and you'll find out all about that. It has to do with uh, people's uh, reactions when confronted with a, um, what we could call a facsimile of a heart. A live oh. heart, which has been happening in in, in Bristol, and we'll see uh, we'll, we'll see where that takes us. Um, we've got an interview, which is something actually we've uh, uh, played uh, before on the show, which is to do with uh, environmental uh, issues. As uh, somebody who's set up something called the Straw Patrol, and we'll be uh, hearing from them and various other interesting things. But I think we should kick off um, with this story about. Um, a moon dust bag. Somebody got very, very lucky. Well, I actually, I don't know how lucky they got, because um, uh, it turns out that NASA misidentified the bag... That uh, contained uh, a load of moon dust that came back with Neil Armstrong. Yeah, that's, I that's think it was this.
1: a, a decontamination decont- bag. So the main the main bulk of the moon dust has been taken out, but it's still got some some little remnants in it, which is what makes it so um, so exciting a find. But they misidentified it because um, it should have gone to the Smithsonian Center, and it just ended up being auctioned off for <laughs> for about nine hundred and ninety five dollars. Yes.
0: Uh, yes nine hundred and ninety five dollars so isn't it nearly a thousand bucks i mean that's that 's quite a lot of money that's
1: a, a fair bit of money in itself,
0: however the uh, this, markup on this thing. The markup, <laughs> it was a lawyer from uh, Illinois, it doesn't I don't, the story doesn 't tell us uh, who it was, um, but NASA suddenly realized that they 'd given this thing away, which it must be um, on, on anybody 's reckoning an extremely valuable. Um, piece of scientific paraphernalia, historical docu- uh, historical object, and they said, oh, no, this was a terrible mistake. Uh, we want it back. And a federal judge said, no, sorry, it belongs to the person who bought it. And uh, yeah. th- the person who bought it has just recently put it on sale again. And uh, on the 20th of July, it sold for... One point eight million dollars, yeah. which is about one point four million pounds. That was a pretty good investment.
1: That's a very good investment and a very, very good little profit there. When you said that na- they accidentally gave it away, they definitely gave it away when it was <laughs> worth that much in the end.
0: That's just a- a- absolutely extraordinary. So, um, so that, so that was that, and. Um, that was for you,
1: Andrew. Uh, yes. You know. that,
0: that, that was for you. This, com- this is, the as uh, Hannah said, the outer decontamination bag from the Apollo 11 mission in 1969 was bought at Sotheby's by an anonymous bidder for $1.8 million. That's a clear £1.4 million. Uh, pounds. Um, so there's another story. I'm, I'm uh, uh, quickly uh, racing to uh, find it on my list of uh, stories here. So I may have to defer uh, to you. We're not, which we- one is it? <laughs> it's the other space story that we were going to uh, talk
1: the, about. Uh, the telescope. Thank the, you. The, uh, that's the, the South African telescope yes, that they've got that's now going by. to be able to reach 9 billion light years away. Yeah. Um, now I, I watched a little video that was on on the BBC website and I I can't remember anymore but I think it said it was strong now na- it would be strong enough to detect a mobile on Jupiter but I feel like it
0: yes. definitely could well it's a it's it's a mo- a mobile signal yes in fact on uh, uh, on Jupiter so if if you're listening from Earth. Uh, you should be able to pick up a mobile signal that's emanating from Jupiter, yep. which is a very long way away, it has to be said. Uh, and so that's... Uh, and, and a mobile signal, relatively speaking, would be a very, very small thing. Um, this is the story that uh, in South Africa, in a, in a corner, a quiet corner of South Africa, uh, with the um, uh, much support from the South African government, um, they are setting up an array of radio telescopes um, the these this new radio telescope, because it will be behave as one I mean this is a marvelous idea where you have lots and lots of little radio telescopes and you you bind them all together and oh. they make one large array thats that 's the idea yeah they um, they They've actually um, set up 64, or they will have set up, 64 dishes by next year. They're going to increase that number to 3,000 dishes, all linked together, sensitive Enough to detect, as, you, as we've said, a mobile signal from Jupiter. By the way, I should stress nobody's interested in picking up a mobile signal from Jupiter.
1: No, but it's, uh, it's a good marker. <laughs> I for mean, us it to be really probably would be comprehend. a very
0: uneventful uh, conversation. <laughs> uh, we don't expect there to be any mobile any signals on uh, from Jupiter. Jupiter. Um, and South Africa has started to set up these radio telescopes, far more powerful than any of the current ones in use around the world. And uh, this is all part of. Uh, looking for extraterrestrial activity. It's interesting. If you want to see that film, it's actually carried on the BBC uh, Science and Environment uh, website, uh, and uh, it's headed telescopes to reach 9 billion light-years away. And uh, the... Um Interesting. Uh, one of the interesting things that uh, someone says at the end of that film is that uh, when you build something like this, so precise, so advanced, so good uh, uh, at uh, uh, detecting what it's, de- what it's designed for, we have no idea what it's going to find.
1: Yeah, I remember him saying, he was like, yeah. if I speak to you in, you know, 10, 15 years from now, I will probably be able to tell you discoveries that I, I couldn't even imagine at this point. And I thought it was quite interesting, actually.
0: I thought it was really Just nice. Just a a completely remarkable thing. Well, look, let's have a little bit more uh, music, and then after that um, we are, well, we'll do something else. We're going to be uh, talking about... uh, the Environment and uh, Straw Patrol. Um, a little while ago, a few, some months ago now, I encountered somebody called Carla uh, Diaz, uh, a Portuguese person who had been working uh, in uh, the um, Southern uh, Sahara, sa- south of Mexico, uh, Mexico, Morocco. They're two slightly different places, So <laughs> get that uh, right. And um, uh, she had uh, been able to get together a, a group of people to tackle a uh, uh, a problem and uh, that had uh, to do with the number of straws that they found uh, on a beach. I'm gonna let her uh, explain what that is but uh, I find this quite an inspiring uh, environmental project. This is uh, Carla uh, Diaz and, and my interview with her uh, about what she called the straw patrol.
2: This started last summer, it was August, and I saw a video of a turtle that was rescued from uh, Costa Rica, and she had a, a plastic straw in, their no- in her nose. And I, I found it so disturbing that I realized I had to do something. And I targeted these little plastic things, so plastic straws, and this was what started a straw patrol. I want to make people aware that plastic straws Even if we just use them five or 10 minutes, they can be a huge danger for wild animals.
0: Is this because local government is not doing its job properly and uh, disposing of sewage and waste in a particular way, or is this something which is a responsibility of, of all of us?
2: It's all of us. Because actually in Portugal we do have uh, quite good recycling system, but plastic straws, whatever, in Portugal or in other countries, they are they are not being recycled. And even if they go to landfills, if even if they are correctly disposed on trash uh, bins, they they can just uh flew away because they are so light and even if they fall in the in the road or in the street they will end up in the ocean and they will be a huge uh danger
0: now plastic in general is a problem isn't it
2: yes it is especially disposable plastic because plastic it's it's actually quite good and we need it in our daily lives but what makes it so good actually makes it so bad because it's very durable, so it lasts a long time and it has a lot of plasticity, it's it's possible to do several things with it, but it also means that it stays in the environment for hundreds of years.
0: And when the plastic goes into the sea, uh, you were you were telling me earlier that something rather sinister and uh, dangerous happens to it.
2: Yeah, plastic don't stay with the the size that we always find a plastic bag will eventually degrade. It will break down into small pieces, and these can turn into microplastics. Microplastics are plastics with less than five millimeters, and they can be a huge problem for small species like uh, plankton, like uh, organisms that are on the, b- on the bottom of the trophic chain and they will be the food for fish that will in the end be the, the foods that we have in your dish in our dishes and these microplastics that are ingested by all these organisms they can retain chemicals and they can absorb contaminants from the water and we will be hitting microplastics with chemicals. There was a a study done in Portugal and it found that around 22% of the fish that was collected had microplastics. And even if we think it's just so little, it can be a, a really big problem. It's microplastics with macro problems.
0: So if you have a message for the rest of us, what would it be?
2: I would just ask people to stop or to reduce disposable plastics, because it can, they can be big in the beginning, but they can break down into small pieces, and it doesn't matter if they are big or small, both sizes will pose huge problems to people, to other animals, and to the entire planet.
0: Paula, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. That's Carla uh, Um I, I love the fact that when people um, see a, a problem and then just organize. And deal with it.
1: Yeah, take responsibility to find, yeah. find something they can do.
0: Yeah. I mean, in, in in some ways, you know, we we uh, spend a lot of time um, you know, I I'm one of those people who thinks that governments should take action, mm. should do things uh, to make the environment better. You know, I'm a big big believer in, in in government being able to do things that um, individuals and smaller groups can't do or can't do so easily. At the same time, I love the idea that people get together and uh, say here's a problem. It's a local problem that we've noticed or it's Here's an aspect of a big problem happening right here on our doorsteps. We'll we're, we'll organize and, and, and we'll deal with it
1: yeah, yeah And just like the passion that comes out in the way people speak about it as well When it's something that they've created and they have brought up from the ground they've made this or um, made this movement of their own You know like the the uh, straw patrol.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um it turns out that these microplastics—we talked about this on the show before—but mm-hmm. are an enormous problem because we don't actually know the extent of the of the problem in in, in every organism. It seems every sea creature yeah. that we look at, we find very fine particles of, of plastic, and we don't really know the effect of that yet.
1: No, we don't. I think isn't there an, a plastic ban coming into pl- a microplastic ban coming into place in the UK this year?
0: Yes. So that so these are uh, little tiny beads of plastic oh, aren't they which are for
1: face washers and things like f- yes, that yes yeah.
0: contained in certain kinds of cosmetics I'm not, I'm not quite sure uh, what they do but I they're think they're supposed they help to be
1: with... exfoliants um, yeah, oh, you right. can use other things there's ones that use like broken up apricot shells and things like you that you can instead. use sandpaper yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you <Yes>. could maybe <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm not very good at this sort of thing You know? No,
1: do you use sandpaper <laughs> yes I just use sandpaper yeah. all the time That's why so that rugged. explains
0: my strange look <laughs> Uh, yeah uh, and it turns out that there's a, um, an enormous island we're talking um, thousands of miles if it was all put together of mm. plastic uh, the, that floats in the uh, in the pacific i believe yeah I, the, I, the garbage patch they yeah, call it yeah yeah it's absolutely so, vast yeah. yeah yeah i um uh, i i have a friend and uh, who um, basically did some phd research on um, bio Pla- uh, um, biodegradable plastic mm. and, and and the idea was to teach plants um you know, and basically train plants uh, and I'm not sure how they, how they do this to actually create plastic so I mean we, we're talking about the injection of genes into yeah uh, you know um uh, genetic modification of plants to produce strands of uh, plastic-like substance, which for all intents and purposes is a is a real plastic.
2: Amazing. Um,
0: and what would
1: would biodegrade completely? Yeah, yeah.
0: And I often wonder what I mean. I wonder how extensively biodegradable plastic is is used, and whether it is mm. completely and totally yeah. biodegradable. I'm
1: not sure either. But I did see something quite interesting. I saw some fully biodegradable straws just just to use in the watershed, and I'd never actually seen that before. They weren't the paper ones. They were just a, a form of biodegradable biodegradable plastic
0: Hmm. yeah well there you go maybe 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 we've inspired some people uh to uh, (laughs) set up a project clean something up yeah uh in 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 the neighborhood and keep asking government to take it absolutely seriously uh, uh, as well um i'm joined now on the line by uh, david McGoran from rusty squid hi david
3: hi there hi
0: it's uh, very nice to talk to you. Thank, thanks for um, joining us. I should explain to you, I, ha- I haven't actually said very much about why we've uh, got you on the on the show. So if I, I just set this up, um, I saw actually via the um, University of West of England, the UE uh, uh, website, uh, their news website, that in fact uh, you, uh, Rusty Squid, uh, along with uh, some other people, I believe, from King's College uh, in, in London, have been... Uh, taking um, quite uh, an interesting experience to the public. It has to do with relating to the heart. Can you you just tell us what it is that you've been doing in Bristol?
3: That's right. That's right. Well, maybe maybe I'll just uh, set the stage by telling a little bit about our studio. uh, We're quite a remarkable little studio in Bristol. Um, We're basically an experimental robotic engineering and design studio that works within the arts. So we're a bunch of robotics engineers and designers and we work closely with artists and scientists to create these unusual experiences. Um, we, we basically worked towards creating these emotional, primal reactions in people, and we've been experimenting with this for, for many, many years.
0: Well, what, 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 uh, before we get to this specific one then, what other kinds of things have you done?
3: Well, we've 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 actually been working with Channel Four over the winter. Um, I can't say much about it because it's going to be a, a ah, special secret. piece related related in a few months. But we we are building this unique robot that. Um, that had some social and emotional intelligence and we we abandoned it on the streets of Bristol uh, (laughs) to run a series of social experiments.
0: I like Um, the idea of abandoning a robot on the streets. So so that that, that sounds intriguing.
3: Okay, so- so, It's a whole whole wide variety of things that we do because sometimes we do very large uh, spectacle things, sometimes we do very small and intimate things. But each each project is is aimed at trying to almost trigger those those primal emotional reflexes that we, we hold in our body. What
0: um, uh, uh, what got you interested in in in, in doing this? Because this is an interesting mix, isn't it? Bringing science, science and engineering uh, yeah. together with um, art. I mean, what? Uh, I don't know how unusual that is. I've heard of some uh, projects which combine art, art and science, but I st- I think it's still pretty innovative. What got right. you? What got you into doing it? Well,
3: I'm hugely passionate about engineering and, and science, and. And um, it, it's quite—it's it's easy to forget that that the, the you know our frontal cortex uh, came very late in our evolution, you know, and that that the majority of us are the majority of what we are, the majority of our brain is is hardwired for these very uh, simple and base, almost animal uh, instincts and reflexes, and and so it's very difficult to to when you when you have an interesting story to tell about science or engineering. It's very difficult to go to the streets or go to people and start bombarding them with science and the maths and the yes. machine learning and the simulations. And it's easy to forget to speak to the to the, to the the human animal, if you like. Yes. Um, well, I've got a background in, in puppetry and a background in dance as well as engineering. <laughs> so, so, to me, it's, a quite, it's, quite a, it's quite a natural mix to bring yeah. those all together if you want to have an effective form of of communication.
0: It's quite an eclectic mix and I have to say it's, it's music to um, our ears here because we're very interested in the whole idea of communicating science to the public. Obviously that's one of the reasons why we, we do the show and of course People in uh, many, many people have this very stereotypical idea, don't they, of the engineer or the scientist, and uh, this is what the engineer has
3: a has a hard hat and and works in a construction site, and the scientist is in the lab coat. Yes, and 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 it's it's really not the case at all these days. Yes. So we've been working very closely with um, David Avid who's who's one of the world's leading leading experts in, in biomedical engineering centered on the heart. And and him and his team, they're they're so far from that, that stereotypical notion of, of engineers. And most people would be very surprised to see that they're engineers who are who are working to, to better understand our organs and disease and the disease progression.
0: Well, let's talk about that project then. So, so you um, have, have have been. I think there were two particular uh, days when you were on the streets of Bristol. What 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 were you doing first of all?
3: Well, it, this is this is essentially a project um, that's funded by the Royal Academy of Engineering. So it's an essentially it's a, it, it's an engineering communication project to 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 basically rebrand what engineers are in the world. And the engineers we were working with um, are biomedical engineers. So we wanted to, to basically have an emotional embodied experience that people can then feel like the work that's being done in these universities is, is meaningful to them, almost symbolic to them, almost almost poetic. So we decided to, to design and fabricate these soft robotic hearts. So they are literally the size of a, a real living heart. Um, they look a little bit like uh, a large uh, red pepper uh, that's had the top cut off, so you can see the internal chambers. And we, we designed these special mechanisms and special actuators so the heart can actually pump exactly as it is inside your body in real time with your own heart. So we'd fit the public with a, with a heart rate monitor, a very accurate heart rate monitor. And, and basically, give them the experience of holding their own heart beating in their hands.
0: Okay, so they can hear their own heart, and it's synced with the artificial heart. Is that the idea?
3: They can exactly, it's synced with their their own heart, um, and they can feel, they can feel and see, witness their own heart beating in their hands, beat for beat. Uh,
0: and what was it that you were trying to uh, achieve with this?
3: Well, again you know if we if we started if we started hitting them up with you know the, the machine learning and the mathematical modeling that's going on you know in our in our research labs about the heart that these people would, would switch off we're trying to we're trying to we're trying to reach out to a community that might not necessarily go to a science fair or an engineering fair people that are just out to have a coffee with their friends or out for a walk on the street and so it, we need to make the work personal and 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 meaningful to them and so people hanging on to these hearts physically their own hearts and they can even we had a few of them so people can hold each other's hearts like uh, you know a child could hold its mother's heart um, grandfather could hold his grandson's heart wow. two lovers can exchange each other's hearts and feel them while they were kissing speeding up and, <laughs> and so the work becomes it becomes personal it becomes yeah meaningful.
0: very very much so then,
3: and then the questions start coming, right? Then, yeah. am I healthy? What's going on in the world of research? How do you know it's this size? What do we know? What don't we know about the heart? And the public start leaving that. That curiosity is just naturally starts to come as soon as people have that almost physical, very simple connection to the work
0: and and what kind of um, reactions did you get from people because it it seems to me from the write-up on the on the site where the 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 write-up that i read that people react had very emotional reactions to this
3: well this is it it's quite a it's quite a vulnerable thing to hold your own heart beating your hands it's a a lot of people at first were, were a bit wary um but it's but i mean you're 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 exposing this this organ which is you know, out of sight, out of mind, rather convenient for a lot, a lot of us. You're holding it out for the world to see, for your friends to see. So it can trigger a lot of, of, of diverse emotions. For, for, for many people, it was a lot of fun. Like I said, we had, we had couples kissing, um, kids tickling each other to see if they can trigger their brothers and sisters' hearts to race. Um, we had people, you know, with, with, with obvious concerns. Um, uh, maybe, maybe they haven't thought much about their heart or their heart health. In, in their life. yeah, um, We've obviously uh, many elderly people um, who, who, who are dealing with, with various issues of the heart, so it's, it, it's a very personal thing and we've, we, we've had to be quite careful to, to hold, hold that space and be prepared for, for a whole slew of, of responses.
0: Yes, I imagine, you, because although some people m- might be absolutely delighted by it, you could have people who are actually really quite anxious as well and it makes them feel very vulnerable. Yeah,
3: but that's not a that's not necessarily a, a, a bad place to no, be. No. Our, our lead our lead designer Helen White on the project was amazing because very early on she realised that we don't want to be recreating a you know like a gory special effect heart. You know, we yeah. not want to make it look like a prop from a horror movie. Yes, so she worked very carefully, researched a whole number of materials and sty- styles to, to slightly stylize the heart so it looks a little bit like a, a precious gem. Yeah, um, and found this lovely, silky uh, silicone. So it's actually a really lovely object to hold. So people are are cherishing this object, almost having more empathy with it.
0: Wow, what a what a remarkable project, uh, reconnecting people with uh, well with themselves, with our with ourselves. Um, uh, David, thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, very very much appreciated. Wish you the very best, David McGoran uh, from Rusty Squid.
3: Thank you, very much.
1: Bye bye. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM radio.
0: It's been Boring it down here in Bristol. Of course, you might be listening to us on the worldwide interweb. Uh, If you're in Bristol, it's 93.2 FM, and uh, you can uh, download, or or rather stream, uh, any of our programmes if you go to bcfmradio.com. So wherever you are, you can be in Brazil, you can be in Antarctica, but you can listen to uh, Love and Science on BCFM, and also all the other uh, great programmes that come uh, from BCFM on all kinds of uh, subjects, do take a look because it really is rather fantastic here on the award-winning BCFM. Right, so we're a science show. If you haven't figured that out yet, I don't know what to say. Uh, We're looking at science in the news and behind the news and we've already looked at quite a few things. Here's a weird story. Um, Hannah, when when you go to listen to something... Mm obviously you need to turn your head yeah uh, so that say so so say that you uh, want to listen to something from your right you might you might turn your head towards the right but did you know that apparently our eardrums move well inside n- our heads yeah
1: not before i read this
0: no that's an extraordinary story isn't it
1: yeah i thought it was amazing so they had small monitors um well small devices monitoring ear pre- like pressure within the inner ear yeah, And they found out that when your eyes turn to look, the pressure inside your ear, uh, ear canal changes, which indicates that your eardrums may be being sort of moved to follow the direction that your eyes are going yeah. and help you perhaps work out which thing in that direction is what's making the sound that you're trying to focus on. Um,
0: yeah, it's it, it's it's really quite amazing. This is uh, uh, Jennifer Grow is the is the uh, chief researcher at Duke University in Durham, uh, in North Carolina, in the states, and her team have been using microphones inserted into people's ears to study how their eardrums change during. Now, I don't know how you say this word, but I'm saying cicadas. That sounds, um, that sort of sounds right, but saccades? maybe cicades. That could, that could work, saccades, but I have no idea and uh, unfortunately um, I have uh, no way of verifying that at the moment. But anyway, uh, apparently um, the cicades are the na- is the name that they give for the little movements that occur in our eyes. Uh, when, they, when they move, they move by little jumps and leaps and uh, when we shift visual focus from one place to another and, and our eyes go through several saccades or cicadas I just think that sounds <laughs> so much more sophisticated uh, um, in a second to uh, take in our surroundings.
1: Yeah, so rather than moving in, a, in one smooth sweeping motion, yeah. they sort of jump as we go as you move your eyes along.
0: And uh, they looked at 16 people and detected changes in ear canal pressure that was probably caused by the middle ear muscles tugging on the eardrum. So this is the first time that we've known that apart from moving the head, we have another mechanism which is our our inner ears actually move in sync with our eyes uh, to try and get a better grasp on uh, uh, what the sound is and where the sound is coming from. these changes to the eardrums according to this report begin as early as 10 milliseconds before the eyes even start to move.
1: Yeah I I couldn't I could I don't think that they explain like why that might be apart from the fact that um, the brain might signal to the ears that the eyes are going to move and it could be just that perhaps the signal gets to the ears first yeah uh, just because of um, any delay in the neural pathways but they begin to move then the eyes move and they the eardrums continue to move uh, for up to 10 milliseconds after the eyes have found what they were wanting to look at.
0: Yeah. I mean, there is, uh, there's something in the report here it says how our moving eardrums affect what we hear is unclear. Mm. One theory for why the eyes and the ears move together in this way is that it helps the brain make sense of what we see and hear and the discovery could lead to better hearing aids which uh, currently amplify all sound equally regardless of where it's coming from.
2: Yeah. I've So that would be marvellous. Yeah
1: it would really make a big difference because some people um, you know if you've got some hearing aids that do just that and amplify everything you can hear things like you can hear people chewing really loudly and things like that so if you manage to make a hearing aid that can focus on what your eyes are looking at. Um, or in that direction, you might be able to target it better to actually what you want to hear, not just
0: what's around. I've noticed I get, it's because I'm aging, aging so much, but I, I have noticed that I can't hear uh, anything like as well as I used to do when I'm in crowds. Mm. And apparently that's because as you get older, various frequencies drop off, but they don't all drop off Equally, so it's not like the whole of your listening is dropping yeah. in a uniform way. It's that certain frequencies, uh, all along the spectrum, drop out. And uh, so when, when, when you're in a crowd of people, uh, you have much less sharp perception of what people are saying.
1: Yeah, I think you can get targeted hearing aids for just the frequencies that you're losing, Malcolm, <laughs> if you need it.
0: <laughs> I'm going to resist that for as long as humanly possible. <laughs> They'll have to strap me down and plug in uh, uh, hearing aids. But there you go. I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of people feel like that. Uh, still we've got one more story that we want to do before we uh, come to the uh, end of the show and that is uh, why dogs are friendly and apparently it's because it's written in their genes we picked this up uh, from the BBC uh, website is uh, Helen Briggs story um, apparently dogs evolved from wolves about between ten, twenty thousand 20000 years ago yeah quite they a long think, time ago because some of those wolves had it had uh, it had it in their nature to be friendly—that's yeah, the story. A slightly,
1: a slightly, innate tendency to to like people more than others. And they they would happen to be the ones that we'd keep on um, a bit longer and breed. So, what the study is looking for is a link between the genes and liking strangers and attention to people. So they had a look at some wolves and some dogs and had a look at like their their problem solving ability is the same, but also looking at how much of their time they spent looking at people and yes. wanting to be around people. I
0: love that, this, this, this idea, they noticed that they spent more time looking at people.
1: Just gazing lovingly. Just,
0: yes, just gazing, oh. yes. So, uh, and, and, and it's from that uh, catch of wolves, really, mm. that, that behaved in this way. Uh, that Some of them just hung around with people and we've developed all of our um, uh, varieties of dogs ever ever since, some of which look nothing like a wolf
1: no quite a lot <laughs> quite, of which look nothing quite, like a wolf quite
0: an extraordinary but it's
1: really like a kind of a, like selective breeding selecting the ones that uh that want to be around humans and are are friendlier and um, that we end up with a, a much higher dominance of that or a much higher prevalence of that kind of gene if it is you know strongly gene related uh, within a population of
0: dogs Well, I think we should pursue that story uh, next week. Yeah, a little bit more on that because that's quite an interesting one. We're joined, of course, as always, by John Ford from uh, Getting Bristol Home. Uh, Stay tuned because John's uh, coming next with that. How you doing?
4: I'm all right, thank you. Funnily enough, um, it was my privilege again to do the commentary at the Harbour Festival this year, and I was talking to the the guy who runs the uh, Newfoundland dogs who who go in and do the rescuing demonstration. You've seen them at the Harbour Festival. Everyone seems to love them. saying that uh, they've got a a particular um, thing for water and uh, he just gave me an example of when they were uh, down in Devon uh, a few years ago with his his younger children. His children wanted to go in the sea and the dogs got between his children and the water and and prevented the children from going in. He didn't know why and then uh, later on they went in the water and then the dog ran in and literally tried to drag them out.
1: (laughs) Oh wow. It's
4: fantastic. A little later on, several hours later, there was this big riptide which sort Ah. of comes in and takes everything out. So the The dog dog had this sense that this riptide was on its way somehow. He knew that humans can't. So very, very clever things, aren't they?
0: They really are. It's extraordinary. Yeah. John, we've got time for you to tell us one thing we I just got wrong. Thing.
4: Well, uh, you haven't got anything wrong. You oh. just haven't included
0: some stuff. expose our great neglect. Well,
4: let's continue the animal thing. Th- this day in 1997, the same Scottish scientists who produced Dolly, you remember the cloned sheep? Oh, oh yes. Yeah, announced on this day in 1997 that they had cloned a sheep with human genes ah. called Polly, along with four other cloned lambs. To mark a milestone. In the effort to alter the genetic makeup of animals, on this day, in 1997, it never really went that far, did it? Because there was so much
0: controversy surrounding it. That's absolutely true, right. and 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 of course, um, that poor animal didn't live too long. But no. we've come a long way since then. We have. Yeah. Well, look, thanks, John. Stay tuned uh, to uh, listen to John uh, getting Bristol home after the news. It's been great to have your company as always. A Big thanks, of course, uh, to Hannah. Uh, ben week and uh, (laughs) uh, have yourselves a very very good evening don't forget to join us again next week for another edition of love and science